This episode first aired on our new channel, Leaders in Tech and E-Commerce Podcast. It covers supply chain tech in depth. We do hope you enjoy it and feel free to follow our other podcast as well for the latest episodes. It's my pleasure to have with us today, John Urban. John was the co-founder and president of GT Nexus, the leading cloud platform for supply chain management, which was acquired by Infor in 2015 for $675 million. And prior to GT Nexus, John was an executive with the American President Lines, APL Shipping in short, one of the largest ocean liner companies. Uh, and he's, he held several executive positions throughout Asia, North and South America. Since leaving GT Nexus in 2016, John has become a board member and advisor to several tech startups in the logistics and supply chain space, including Mercado, Slink, or Clear Metal. So, uh, John, real pleasure to have you with us today and looking forward to the sharing session. Thanks very much for the invitation and, and look forward to chatting with you. And I, I'd like to start a little bit um, uh, with your career story because, uh, you know, 40 years in the industry is a long time and and you have a fascinating journey so you've been with the shipping line you actually have a tech related education you have been to the shipping line then you set up uh, over the course of 17 years one of the most successful technology uh, software companies tell us a little bit about you know in a in a short way those those 40 years and how it happened sure so just accelerating to the early i mean early part i uh, i actually started my career after finishing grad school uh, at ibm so I, I really started in technology um and then for for a number of reasons transitioned into um logistics uh for several years i ran a uh, a us domestic intermodal refrigerated uh transportation company and then and, and that uh, was ultimately acquired by by apl um, and I really had to make a decision do I, that I really want to uh, dedicate my career into logistics uh, and supply chain. Um, and APL just really offered some really exciting opportunities for, to, to live internationally, uh, to, to expand my horizons. Um, it was the 80s. It was a, uh, the golden era of containerized shipping. Um, and it was a lot of fun. So I held a number of positions, uh, lived in Southeast Asia for about five years. Um, was responsible and ran all of our South American uh, services for for about five years, and, and uh, held a, a variety of other um, uh, positions in in Oakland, California. So fast forward to 1999, uh, the internet boom is is with us. Uh, B2C is going crazy across the internet. Uh, there really are no B2B platform plays that that, that are that are beginning to appear, um, and and I, and I bumped into a, a gentleman called by the name of Aaron Sassone, who was a very successful um, technology player and had built and went public with, with a couple of companies along the way. And he had a lot of vision and opportunity and saw a lot of solutions and applications for the internet um, that would apply to business. And the joke we had was he had all these solutions, but for the life of him, he couldn't find any problems. And I, coming from the, the, the shipping world, um, I had more than enough problems. Um, so we were a pretty good match and we came together, founded, got funding for, for GT Nexus. Um, we spent the first six or seven years really focused on transportation and logistics solutions. Um, and then, and, and then we recognized that we, while we had built 
a great foundation for the company in uh, international logistics and transportation. And, uh, and, and we had really solved many of the data quality issues that are associated with trying to provide visibility in that sort of environment, at least in that time frame. Um, that there was a much, much, much larger market if you expanded it out to, to true supply chain. Uh, you began to look at purchase order and SKUs um, and, and extend the visibility platform that you're providing to from the time an order is issued until the time it arrives at final destination, be that a warehouse or a store shelf, or in many cases, even returned back to the, to the, to the manufacturer. Um, so, uh, so really beginning in 2008, we really transitioned the company into a real supply chain company. That's when the company really began to grow. Um, and then uh, by the time we hit 2015, um, we had become quite substantial. We were the largest uh, global supply chain platform in the world um, with a real terrific group of Fortune 500 customers who were really very committed um, to growing on the platform uh, and made the decision to sell to Infor for $675 million, uh, which was a, a, a great price. Um, and, and then that, I stayed on for about eight or nine months. And then I really had to decide what I really wanted to be when I grow up. Do I, uh, do I want to go back and be an executive someplace else? And what I really decided is that I, I really liked a very active, participative um, role in young companies to, um, to help them understand what they could do better and faster, to help them to avoid some of the many mistakes that, that I made along the way at TT Nexus. Um, so I, re I really kind of carved out this relationship with, with four or five companies uh, where I'm a, a strategic advisor to the CEO uh, and or uh, a board member in the company. Uh, mm. And that has really, really been something that's really rewarding. It's really allowed me to keep my, my finger on the pulse of supply chain technology. And uh, I feel like I'm doing some good, good things for people. Mm. Specifically on the, on the journey, on the overnight success of building GT Nexus over 17 years. Now, yeah. mind, the, mind the irony somewhat because uh, I want to make a point and I guess, and I'm, you know, I'm quite impatient personally. And I think right now uh, in general, there is, a, uh, there is a perception that startups and especially if you're in tech and software, you're going to make it big, you know, in two, three, four, five years, that's it. You know, you've conquered the world. <laughs> Usually people think, uh, or they, they, some, of, some of us have this perception. So I wanted to talk a little bit. It took you 17 years to build GT Nexus and to exit. And I'm sure you've been asked this uh, question before, but what would be some of the best lessons that you have uh, learned in that journey of, of building, pivoting, fight, fighting with different challenges that you must have had that might also apply and help entrepreneurs that are building tech and software and supply chain today? So, you know, I'm very sensitive to the fact that GT Nexus was the slowest overnight success ever in technology. Uh, no, I didn't know that. But. <laughs> uh, a lot of good lessons and, and, and not to, just to start, but and not to make any excuses because um, it does, I think, take longer on the B2B side um, and for a lot of reasons. But, but remember with 1999, when we founded GT Nexus, um, there was no concept of SaaS or of cloud. I mean, heck, I, I remember as late as 2009 and 2010, 
SAP and Oracle were still running full page ads warning CIOs that don't allow your data out from behind your firewall. You know, um, and, uh, you know, the irony of all that, I, uh, that for, for me was, this is logistics data. It all comes from outside your firewall. <laughs> so, so, so there's a lot of um, missionary work um, that GT Nexus and, and companies of that era really had to do to, to get people smarter as to um, how the internet worked, why it was safe, uh, why it was far better. Uh, and, and in, in B2C, people didn't have to deal with the, those things as much, but that, that's enough about, about excuses. Um, the logistics business is, is traditionally supply chain is, is, um, is cautious. Uh, it's very relationship oriented. People are, don't like to be, uh, in many cases, real bleeding edge leaders. They don't like to be fast followers. They prefer to be more in the, in the majority uh, as things shift. So, so you really have to create some, some tectonic behavior to, to, to really make it work. Now, that, all that said, I think today we look and we live in a totally different world from a technology perspective. Companies can get funded today, uh, spend little or no money building infrastructure because they're, they're gonna they basically they're gonna take their apps, they're gonna put them up on AWS or, or on Google, uh, Google um, They'll be secure, uh, they'll be scalable. They don't have to spend engineering time and effort doing those things. So they can, they can build, they can focus nearly 100% of their engineering talent and energy on applications that face their customers. So, so I think we're, we're gonna largely see um, accelerations of rates of change that's really enabled uh, by new technology. Now there's some caveats there, um, logistics is, the most data-driven um, industry in the world. Um, data about my supply chain and where my product is is in many cases more valuable to the customer than the product itself, or it can be. Um, so there's still a lot of challenges, but, um, but, but I, I really think uh, we're, we're seeing a, a, a real acceleration of, of how quickly these companies can come to market and be successful. Mm. That that uh, that uh, for sure, and uh, I actually cannot even think of how uh, how in, in 1999 has passed. That's before you. I even started working, probably. So, um, <laughs> you know, I was probably still in school somewhere. And then when I say that, you know, probably before high school, I don't know. But um, um, there's 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 been an absolute uh, fast forward in terms of technology and how fast it can go to market and and, and get adopted and, and and all of that. However, let's let's just go a little bit deeper on on the point that even today and and I might be wrong, but my feeling is that still when you deal with logistics, when you deal with a lot of the three PL companies, you know you have shipping lines, you have all the different players that have that data, right? When it comes to where is my uh, where is my product? Uh, you have uh, customs. You have you know, and a lot of that data is still um, on paper, and it's it's on hard copies, and you have bill of ladings and all of that. Um, so it's a fairly slow to adapt and slow to go digital uh, type of um, industry. Like you rightfully said, they uh, they don't want to be the you know the early adopters. They want to be maybe the safe and and make sure nothing is broken <laughs> type of adopters. How do you how do you deal with that? Because also you're you're on the boards of several startups that actually aggregate data, right? They are platforms. They try to um, uh, they try to consolidate that data and make it easy easier for clients to to use. 
Um, but how do you best take this challenge of the slowness to change and the fighting back of the, all of this traditional uh, data owners in, in the chain uh, to change? You know, I think, I mean, philosophically, um, you look at the, the food chain um, of supply chain, and it ultimately all starts with with the customer, um, and they and they pay for everything. So they pay for the technology, but they also pay for the three field services and the carrier services and the brokerage services and the banking services. They pay for everything. So so my my approach has always been: you want to build a company um, that really goes out of its way to foster and enhance its relationships with carriers and 3PLs, to have them be cooperative and help and, and, and work in the development of your, work with you in the development of your platform, exchanging information, fixing their internal data problems uh, as required. But the fact of the matter is, unless you have the glue of that customer who's saying, this is what I need, I'm committed to this platform, and I work with these three 3PLs and these six ocean carriers and these 52 truckers, and we're all gonna, we're all going to get integrated to this platform and we're going to, we're going to make it work. Unless you, you have that kind of a glue, um, it's going to be difficult. Now, now that puts a big onus on the technology platform, the software provider to build a fairly large value proposition for that customer that, to cause them to be that motivated to say that they're going to, they're going to drive all their partners on. Now, fortunately, um, because it is the internet, um, once a 3PL or, or a carrier gets onto a platform and uh, addresses uh, whatever issues they need to do to participate well on that platform, they're also there and they're available for the next customer that comes along and the next and the next after that. Um, so, so there is a, a, a virtuous circle that you can, you can begin to build with as you develop platforms. We certainly did that at GT Nexus. Uh, and I think companies today are, are, are are very very focused on on that sort of a strategy so um not an easy answer to your question um but but i think that's one of the biggest drivers of change is uh at the end of the day carriers and 3pls are focused on making sure they take care of their customers and sometimes they need a little bit of a push but the fact is is that their desire is there to do it and um if the customer needs it it'll get done and uh, nowadays we have another a big driver of change, which is uh, uh, COVID-19 and the crisis that it has generated uh, globally in terms of, uh, obviously, we have healthcare crisis, but we have a big uh, supply chain crisis, uh, both on the supply and on the demand side. Um, do you see this uh, situation as accelerating the adoption of digital solutions across supply chains? Do you see more clients being or trying to expedite, uh, you know, uh, having that visibility, those visibility tools, because all of a sudden you don't even know where can I make my products given the, you know, different countries are in lockdowns at different times and all of a sudden everything kind of went, um, went up in the air. Um, do you see this uh, acceleration or, or what's your take on, on the COVID-19 uh, effect on, uh, on digitalization and supply chain? You know, I, I absolutely do see it as an acceleration. I, I, and, you know, you've got to look at it at two levels, kind of a, in the uh, intermediate time frame, the next six months or nine months, I know it's hard to say with, with COVID, um, there's clearly going to be an acceleration of people who want to digitize their supply chains and we'll talk about why. Um, you know, we are in a situation now where many places in the world are, are so um, 
transfixed by by the pandemic themselves, understandably, um, that they're just not going to make a lot of decisions in the short term. But nonetheless, uh, let me give you um, an example on one aspect of the supply chain um, that I think COVID is going to have a huge experience on. In, in February, I was down in Dallas at RELA, the, the, the retail logistics show that is huge. Um, and, and I probably had 20 meetings set up, um, 16 of which canceled because the people I was meeting with didn't, didn't come to the conference after all. And, and none of that was from a fear of, of COVID-19 itself because it, from an American perspective, it was still in China. It hadn't come here in late February. Um, but they, they, weren't, they didn't come because they were, they were all hands on deck. They had no idea where any of their product was in their supply chain and what, what their Chinese um, supply partners could, could build, what they could ship, what was realistic, what was already shipped. Uh, and they were spending all their time on the phone, calling every supplier every day, updating them. Where were they updating them? In email and Excel. Um, it, so they were using totally broken, unproductive um, processes to, to manage uh, this, this response to this, to this challenge. And had any one of those customers made the, made the investment in a, in a digital order management system, that would allow their customers to connect electronically, uh, that would automate much of the input um, and visibility, um, their lives would have been 90% simpler. They, 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 they would have been, been far more efficient, not that they would have come to Rela, but, uh, but it's a change. And I think that, that that's sort of an event when it's that cataclysmic, it, it leaves a scar. Um, and I don't expect everybody who was affected like that uh, to go out and order and buy a, a, an order management platform uh, tomorrow um, because there's, there's going to be a certain percentage that will just say, oh my God, the economy is melting. I need to stick my head in the sand and not spend any money. But a big percentage um, of those people are, are going to say, geez, if I'm going to, if I'm going to survive as a company, if I'm going to be business competitive going forward, I, I really need to, to get on a modern platform on how to, to manage my supply chain effectively. And because it, it's not just COVID-19. I mean, the fact is those same issues were, were felt um, when the tariffs were in place during the, the trade wars. Um, you know, this COVID-19 is what, the, probably the, the, the fourth major assault on international supply chains that we've seen in the last eight or 10 years. So they're not gonna go away. Um, and, and I do see, um, the, the result of, of all of this appeal to, to, to be a, um, to, to support acceleration of, of spending um, on digi in digitizing the supply chain. Mm. And, and specifically on, on, on startups, um, and you sit on, on a couple of exciting ones, boards and, and your advisor to, to a few, how do you see the impact um, of this crisis in terms of their I guess, uh, let me see how to frame the question. I mean, the reality is that money has been accessible at uh, almost uh, crazy money, at, you know, in, in crazy numbers this last years. This is not mm -hmm. gonna happen anymore in terms of funding, in terms of investors, investors just splashing, in terms of, you know, funding of, uh, I don't wanna name, uh, not necessarily in supply chain, but in general, right, funding ideas from co-sharing and co-working spaces and whatnot that 
just basically fundamentals were wrong and they were losing money for the foreseeable future. That ain't going to happen. So we're going to see a much more cautious approach to get to startups getting funded. That means that also the usually in a startup, I was talking to somebody the other day, usually anyways, the teams are working 150% to 200%. And now with this crisis, uh, budgets are tighter. Uh, clients mm -hmm. have less money maybe to spend. How do you, you know, how do you navigate your, uh, your, you know, you, 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 you sit on some boards, right? What are some of pieces, yeah. some pieces of advice that you would give? So I think you got to take that um, apart a little bit into some of its component pieces. I mean, there, there, there clearly was, uh, in major aspects of the VC world, some, some real excessive valuations. Um, we don't need to name the company. You refer to, you know, think of, think of office space. Um, and and you've got a good one, but there there were there were multitudes of others, um, and that's the excess of um, of venture capital where it can become speculative, and and that tends to take care of itself. But frankly, before COVID came along, we uh, we, we started seeing some of those investors um, take the uh, the hits for 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 that that excessiveness. Um, when you look at something, COVID-19 comes along, global pandemic, uh, unbelievably horrible event for the world, um, huge economic downturn. What it does is it, it clearly um, causes companies to be very cautious with, with new companies, startups, uh, with their cash, because the fact is you don't want to be spending uh, at a time when people aren't even considering buying because they're so distracted. But the fact is, as we were just talking, I think if you look out six months from now, maybe we're not where the world has returned to normal, but we're, we're at a place where you can see normal again, uh, where business activity is improving. Um, the lessons learned from the crisis are, are going to be very positive for people who are in the supply chain digitization business, uh, and I think some create some real opportunities. You put on top of that your, your point about VCs, are they going to be spending and investing as much as they have in the last five years. I think there'll, there'll probably be a, a slowdown for the next six months, but VCs by their nature um, aren't, aren't investing for a return next year. They're investing for a return eight years from now, nine years from now. So, so long as they can make the argument that over the next two to three years, the world writes itself, they're gonna return to, to making an investment on that long-term horizon again. So the companies I work with, you know, the, the advice that I give them is to be really you know, really cautious with 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 what spend money on now, how much hiring you're doing today. Spend all your time that you can being close to your customers or get as close to them as as you can, your potential customers. Not because you're going to sell to them today, but you 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 want to make sure that you're ready to go when when they return back to action. And um, so, so conserve cash, extend your burn, um, but you can't put the company into hibernation. Um, you can't totally downsize and then expect in six months from now, you'll be able to re-up everything and put it back in place. And, and I think that's, that's sort of uh, conservative, but not dire um, advice is what this environment really calls for. Mm -hmm. And wanted to ask you on the customer side and on the manufacturer side, and you mentioned on the, on the retailers and what they had to face with China and uh, and it's still happening uh, to this day. I think that a the, the lot of things are not uh, uh, are still up in the air now. Uh, you know, supply maybe it's it's uh, it's up and running, and China is back to to some levels of normal. But demand has pretty much yeah, evaporated exactly. in a lot of in a lot of industries. So you know, it's a it's a chicken and egg type of a situation. 
uh, wanted to probe and ask if you have some examples of things that that you've seen manufacturers and on the client side being done uh, very practical I mean beyond war rooms and and I mean that that almost everybody now they call them war rooms right <laughs> they set up a task force or whatnot but maybe we can you you can um, you can share some examples of what they did right and 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 make it practical for um, people that are listening potentially on the supply chain and manufacturing side to take as, um, I don't know, as advice that they could implement in their own companies. It can be irregardless of industry if you've seen it, whether yeah. it's retail or automotive. Yeah. Well, if, let me give you an example that's back from my GT Nexus days because we were all um, very proud of this. Obviously, uh, when natural disasters happen, it, it's, it's, they're sad and you, and you don't mean to undercut them. But um, when the... Um, when the tsunami hit Japan and created those horrible uh, nuclear accidents and, and really closed the country, obviously it was a, it was a devastating for, for Japan. Um, but it also created huge problems for everybody who had a supply chain that was highly dependent on Japan. And, and one, of our, one of our customers uh, was Caterpillar. And, and they are highly dependent on uh, Japan for a number of, of parts. Um, the comparison I want to draw is there was this big uh, three-page story in the Wall Street Journal about the, the largest auto producer in America and showing pictures of their war room with you know 300 people in it, um, desks stacked with four and five feet of paper. It, I'm probably exaggerating that, but I think that was, that was a big part of it. And people working 20, 22 hours a day, day and night, seven days a week for a month to try to assess the status of GM's global supply chain and, and how they were going to be able to continue to feed their, their plants. And it was all because they have a, a big portion of their supply chain that's dependent on, on Japanese production of parts uh, as well. Correspond that to the supply chain executives at Caterpillar. And, and they told the story, actually, they, they told this story at, um, at, a, at a big conference several years ago. They happened to be uh, in Singapore with you. No, they weren't with you, but they were in Singapore uh, at the time. And they were able to get together on, on GT Nexus and literally in two hours assess where every part that, was, that they needed to get shipped out of Japan was. Understand the urgency that was behind them, prioritize what they needed to get out first. And, and because they were first to market, they were able to lock up virtually 100% of all the air cargo space that they needed. And, and they virtually avoided the major issues within within their supply chain. And I think the, the, the comparison of that picture of three or four guys sitting by a pool and, and solving the problem versus 200 people in, in Detroit, to me, it just always, it, just, it was very visual representation of what you're really trying to accomplish when you truly digitize your supply chain. Mm, mm, yes. Um, all, my, all of my examples mm -hmm. are not that dramatic, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can picture people next to the pool. I mean, in Singapore, you do really need uh, to refresh every so. <laughs> so um, in terms of in terms of people and shifting a little bit the the, the topic to the software element and and uh, human capital and people uh, within within companies. Now it's it's probably uh, this current situation as as most crises are are a time when leadership is most required. Are a time when you obviously as a as a C level, you need to be able to strike a good balance between 
of course PNL and making sure your costs are low and making sure you know you man, you you don't overspend and run into cash problems. But at the same time, looking after your people, uh, morale. There's obviously a lot of stress, uh, anxious anxiety, and and all of that. Do you uh, do you have some examples or some advice? Uh, and you've seen many crises at your you know in your in your career as well in terms of how to do that in the and how to strike that balance right. Strike the balance right. Uh, so you're talking about employee well-being. It may be in a technology company or maybe in a customer of a technology company. It's just in general. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. In general, it can be in general. Yes. You know, I I think the um, the companies that have been able to um, really show that they care about the health and well-being of their of their employees are doing themselves as well as their employees a, a great great long-term favor. And you know, in technology. Um, I think it was relatively easy, given the, the status of, techno of technology in the world, um, to have to, to migrate large numbers of people to work at home. Um, and, I, and I think the lessons learned from all of that is that many of those people aren't coming back to the office. They actually have a better quality of life working at home. They, uh, they certainly have lower costs uh, working at home. Uh, and with, with things like uh, Zoom meetings, uh, you, you can be quite effective. The, um, the other parts of the economy, uh, you know, I think about issues in, in food processing that are going on that are so critical across the world today that those, those food supply chains need to continue to, to work while the rest of the economy doesn't. Um, and, and I know in the U.S. we've had multiple cases, a couple of dozen of uh, major meatpacking houses where COVID-19 has broken out. Uh, and I, and I, I'm going to be a little bit anecdotal here. But across the food processing business, it appears to me from my conversations that, that some companies have gone to seemingly excessive levels to apply industrial engineering and, and process control. And they're really thinking out very quickly, how do you continue to operate this plant in, in, a, in a, an environment where you're at risk of COVID-19? And maybe you can't um, prevent everyone from, from getting sick and exchanging, but how can you really effectively convince your employees and in fact do minimize the implications of the, the risks and the danger. Um, and if you're able, I think those companies who are doing that well uh, are going to win the, the respect and loyalty of the employees long term. So, uh, I mean, I guess, I guess summing it up, you know, CEOs with real um, feelings of social responsibility that are, that are real and not just marketing uh, themes. I, I think, uh, survive and, and manage in these types of crises uh, better than anyone else. Mm. Yeah. Um, final question from, um, from me, John, um, for the younger, for, not necessarily younger, but let's, let's, uh, let's say the younger generation listen to listening to this, but also in general, what would be some, some pieces of advice that you could share from your career, both in the corporate world, as well as an entrepreneur that served you most looking looking back on your 40 years in the industry wow i think you know it sounds like general platitudes or things but 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 i think the the willingness to be bold um and to take some risks and um the willingness to utterly fail and not become overly critical of yourself that you, you did fail um because you we all i think in, in all candor learn more from failure than we do from success so so i think i think to, to me that's the the biggest thing i would want would want to share people spend so much of their time being afraid of being wrong or making a mistake and as a result they never do um and then of course you know you run the risk of hitting your 70s and and 
feeling horrible that you never you never did anything that you wanted to do. So it's about life. I think I think taking risks, being bold, being willing to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and start again is the best advice anybody could kind of run their life with. Mm. I, I I remember that that story and I don't remember the details, but uh, Alibaba found this story, right? Jack Ma that got rejected. I don't know how many times he got rejected when he tried to get into the police academy. I might be getting it wrong, but anyways, the point is he got rejected trying to get into the police, trying to get into the uh, some school. I think they even got rejected when KFC or McDonald's uh, went into China and he applied to get a job there and he basically <laughs> got rejected. So yeah, I think he was saying something that, you know, 20 people applied and he was one of the two that got rejected. So <laughs> <That's very funny. laughs> something like that. So, uh, and his point was, look, just get used to it. You know, the, the faster you get used to being punched in the face and, and picking yourself up, the, the easier it gets over time as well, uh, right? Because, you know, obviously it, all the time it hurts, but the more you do it then you just kind of get used to it and uh not, and, not, and you know, not to even compare myself in any way with jack ma uh that and that level of success uh but I, i can tell you when we were originally trying to fund gt nexus we met with i mean i, I made all the pitches and we we met with 28 venture capitalists all over silicon valley Hill road everywhere um they would work us to uh to a t And, and obviously, at the end of the day, we had we had one that that chose to, to, to make our Series A. Actually, we had a couple of choices, but far larger number um, turned us down. And um, you know, so everybody who thinks that it's out, it's easy to go out and raise money, um, it kind of is. Uh, but you you really need to take a lot of failure and uh, and a lot of no's before you get the appropriate yeses. Um, and one of the ways that I uh, rationalized it and, and survived it is I, I just made a list of everybody who said no to me. Um, now, I never did, but it, my, my plan was to, when we finally got to be successful, I would write them on a note and said, you could have participated in this, but you failed to, to see the, the vision. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry. I'm sure they, they, would, they would have kicked themselves, right? Just as, you know, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of discussions about the other people that failed to invest in, in big companies that made it. Uh, they would know themselves. <laughs> you don't even need to send a note anymore. But <laughs> so I, but I, I think it's, yeah. all, it's all about uh, mental maintenance. How do you keep yourself balanced and, and appropriate? Sometimes doing those sorts of games helps. Yes, yes. Awesome. Well, great to have you. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for all the for all this, the sharing. Stay healthy, stay uh, safe, and, and hopefully this uh, you know this current situation ends sooner rather than later. And uh, and be in touch soon, John. That is a real pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for all your time. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you liked what you heard, be sure to go to www.elcoglobal.com and click the podcast button for all the show notes of the interview. Also, subscribe to our mailing list to get our latest updates first. If you're listening through a streaming platform like iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, we would appreciate a kind review. Five Star works best to keep us going and our production team happy. And of course, share it with your friends. I'm most active on LinkedIn, so do feel free to follow me. And if you have any suggestions on what, what to do and who to invite next, don't hesitate to drop me a note. And if you're looking to hire top executives in supply chain or transform your business, of course, contact us as well to find out how we can help.